0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. It's your host, Jeremy Bergeron. Super stoked to be here, back in the studio, back behind the wheel, and very excited. Very excited if you can't tell. If you're a first-time listener, I'll be excited the whole time. If you're a long-time listener, I'll be excited the whole time. And today's guest makes it really easy to be excited because this is a really, I would say, in my world, a dope human being, right? A lot of perspective, a lot of experience. And so I want to mention this, this human and talk about him, and we're going to jump into some cool stuff around brand and creative strategy and all the things he's been doing. Today, I am joined in the virtual studio by Alex Woods, a distinguished leader in creative marketing and advertising with deep experience at renowned agencies like BBDO, Drogo5, and currently at Accenture Song as the head of brand creative strategy. Alex, thanks for taking some time. Super stoked to be here with you.
1: Jeremy, yeah, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Appreciate it. So Alex, obviously, you know, AI is significantly impacting everything around us. And I'm curious about the field of just brand creatives. There's so many tools and capabilities now that are enhancing creativity, efficiency, which you talked about, effectiveness, things like that. But take us kind of into your view and perspective of like, how are you using it right now? Um, and what are you really excited about when it comes to this dance with AI specific to the world that you're serving? A lot of what I've tried
1: to do over the last several years in particular is reinterpret the classic frameworks of of how marketing works and what makes for successful marketing and then apply that to where we are today and and what we have access to right now. And one of those things... Or or, you know, one way of looking at that or thinking about that is is through this lens of what has traditionally been referred to as distinctive assets, and um, you know, it's 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 not surprising like brand logos, brand marks, brand colors, brand taglines. Historically, those are the things that um, stand out for consumer consumers in their mind, right? That's what they that's what they build associations and and how they build equity with your brand. I think we're entering into a an era where we're not just going to be looking at distinctive assets but we're going to be we're going to be looking increasingly at distinctive actions. And what I mean by distinctive actions is technology is becoming so software in particular is becoming so ubiquitous, it's so built into every aspect of our experiences, it's so built into every aspect of our life that I believe there's an opportunity for brands to think about how they apply that software and how they apply that technology in ways that enables them to show up or behave or engage or participate with their customers in a new way. And if you kind of prescribe to this this other framework or this idea of excess share of voice, I think the opportunity is for brands to think about how they create distinctive patterns of behavior, these distinctive actions, using software, using technology, whether it's on their website, whether it's in their mobile experience, whether it's in a chat interface, And use their brand equities to show up differently in those spaces. And I think that if you do that, then you have a pretty good chance of delighting your consumer. And you have a pretty good chance of increasing how much that consumer is willing to talk about you, you know, online and offline. And and that's really, you know, I, I sort of quickly glossed over it. But that excess share of voice concept is really important. Basically says like, you have a market share within your category. Every brand has a market share within their category. If you can exceed that percentage of your market share in terms of total share of voice in the category, then you're likely to grow. And so if if you think about what software is enabling in terms of our ability as brand leaders to create new experiences or create new interactions with our customers. I think you can start to really play and you can start to think about technology and software as a platform for generating conversations just like we we think about, you know, film or um experiential advertising, right? But specifically AI, there's this notion that it creates efficiency. It certainly creates efficiency, but but I think we have to be careful that it doesn't it doesn't make us all sort of homogenous. I think that there's a chance that it takes out some of the uniqueness of our brand personalities if we're just relying on the software to generate averages from this algorithm and tell us who we should be. Um, I think that there's a very human element to crafting and refining what these algorithms enable. And in my experience, I mean, I don't think this is as a surprise, but it's such early days in this space. There's so much legally that still needs to be worked through before they can be fully kind of opened up to 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 using in our marketing mix and our marketing materials, but no, there's no doubt they're going to be incredibly helpful and they're going to be incredibly powerful. I think they're going to make some of the more mundane tasks faster and and less of a burden, and and allow us to spend more time on the things that we believe really matter and that we enjoy um, in our work and in and in building these companies and building these brands. But I also think there's this opportunity to to take the the, the unique. Experiences or the 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 unique the unique functionalities that that these a, the AI enables and kind of subvert it and and apply it to different problems in our marketing mix or 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 in, in our business ecosystem and engage with consumers and 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 frankly surprise and delight them in in ways that they aren't expecting. So I think I think if you know if you're looking at AI as just like a as a shortcut for creating consistent content or copywriting or you know scheduling or um, or gathering data, it, it does all of those things for sure. But I think it's going to become really special when we start to customize the large language models that sit underneath the application layer, and start to think really creatively about what 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 types of applications can we design, and what types of experiences can we can we design for our our, our brand fans or or our prospective target consumers to make them think differently about us. So. So I, I think I think we're embarking on a, a this whole new era. I, I, I like I like thinking of it as, as as the opportunity of creating these distinctive actions because so much of this is going to be how we how we interact with with software and, and technology at different touch points in our ecosystems.
0: Amazing! I know I will definitely be paying attention, as I'm sure you will as well. I mean, I agree. Early stages, you know, it's going to be super interesting to see and. The velocity of change and just the speed at which, you know, ra- how it's rapidly impacting, you know, arguably every aspect of business is ridiculous. So I'm curious about the Coinbase Super Bowl opportunity, if we can touch on that, like the success of that. Obviously, yeah. if anybody watched the Super Bowl, you probably saw that. Um, but talk about some of the, yeah, the, the strategy that went into that, what, the why behind that, and then some of the results there. The Coinbase work was the,
1: the first work that my team at Accenture took on, they were our founding client. And uh, you know, we we built an incredible team to 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 help support them and help launch them into the mainstream. Really, for the first time, that, that was sort of the highest order strategic requirement for that. You know, we we gotten we got started uh, about six months prior to the Super Bowl, and they they purchased the inventory. You know, this was back in uh, late two thousand or sorry, late twenty twenty one. And uh, crypto was kind of just starting its its big ascent. Uh, a lot of people were were curious about it, but it hadn't quite tipped over into the mainstream. And I think Coinbase, you know, similarly to what we've been describing and what we've been talking about so far, I think I think at the time Coinbase knew they were right on the cusp of being ready to start to to market themselves to you know a national audience. It was this sort of counterculture, contrarian kind of niche thing that had been wildly successful. I don't want to undermine the size of, of, of customers that have entered that category or had entered, entered had entered the category at that time. Um, something to the tune of like 50 million users, but they believe there is an opportunity to get to, you know, a billion users or, or several billion users. And so they started to reach that same tipping point where they realized like we've, we've got to change our approach um, from being, you know, a, uh, a, a sort of crypto native and highly internet focused brand to one that's going to enter into some of these more traditional uh mass media environments and so the 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 work that we had to do was really getting you know rolling up our sleeves and figuring out what was going to feel authentic for coinbase uh, like I said this brand that was that was founded on this fairly contrarian belief at the time that Technology had an outsized role in shaping the future of our financial systems, of uh, global monetary policy and, and global finance. And to be that contrarian for that long, and then to enter into really a marketing institution, the Super Bowl, um, perhaps one of the, like, the most mainstream cultural uh, hallmarks of our time, was really uncomfortable for them. And, and we, we, we looked at a ton of different ideas, but we ultimately ended up with an equally contrarian approach um something that felt really authentic to them what we ended up doing was um using a, a QR code uh ultimately as a traffic driver but we gave that QR code a lot of personality um we treated it like it was the screensaver uh from an old windows pc kind of like just bouncing you know, around yeah bouncing, bouncing around on frame yeah. yeah a really lo-fi little jingle to it um really lo-fi color palette uh it was a little bit grainy there was nothing trying to be you know overly polished uh in, in a way it was it was it was doing what the crypto native crowd it, it was was attempting to do with the global financial industry and that's that's to say like troll it a little bit. It, it was trying to have some fun, it was trying to poke at it, and and I think importantly, it was a full 60 seconds long and it had almost no branding in it. So what it what it sort of became was this blind invitation just to get involved, and and it became kind of a a a bellwether for whether you were part of this new generation that was interested in exploring change or whether you were, you know, maybe not quite, not quite there, a little bit more conservative. And, um, yeah, we, it, honestly, it shocked us. Um, we, we knew that it was going to be very different. Um, and I think that that's often a mindset that, that you can apply to a lot of different brand, uh, contexts. You can, you can go with a crowd or you can kind of ask yourself, like, what's the opposite that everyone expects here? And um, certainly in this instance, we did what was what was seen as the opposite approach. Uh, there were no big celebrities. There were no like CGI fireworks, just this innocent little, you know, lo-fi bouncing QR code. But 20 million people ultimately pulled out their phones in the middle of a of a Super Bowl party, you know, noisy, like eating chips, drinking beer, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and, and took a took a photo or opened up their camera and clicked through to this uh, QR code. Twenty million people just just w- during the sixty seconds while it was airing, and then even more than that, um, I think what we were most surprised by right because this is a financial instrument y- you need to you know provide your your social security number you've got to take a picture of your driver's license to uh, open up a new account, but of those twenty million we got almost half a million people to, to to go all the way through that new sign up enrollment process so I think it's an interesting example like depending on who you talk to if you' if you if you went out and surveyed like you know 22 tw- 20 year old 21 22 year old kids today i bet a lot of them would say that's one of their favorite commercials and they think pretty f- positively about coinbase for doing something so brazen and something that felt so counterintuitive and and disruptive it was like very purely a brand gesture in that sense but it also shows that there were a lot of people who are kind of sitting on the edge of the category who hadn't necessarily opened an account yet but were paying attention to it and were kind of just, just looking for that last little nudge, and it acted as that nudge for them as well. Um, so it was hugely successful. I, honestly, we we've we've done we've done a little bit of like internet research on this, and and I can't find anything. So you know, I have to take my word for it. But I don't believe that there has ever been a a, a piece of communications that generated that size of a response uh, spontaneously and, uh, simultaneously in the way that that did. Um, I don't think that, you know, a Taylor Swift album or, um, opening up, you know, concert tickets for sale or any of that stuff has, has, has actually generated that size of a response in just 60 seconds, you know, obviously over like three or four minutes, probably, um, those new albums, you know, like the, the streams just skyrocket. Um, but we think that there was something pretty special about that, and I think I think it sort of signals the start of a new era for for brand advertising and for for the future of communications. I think you know we see it often, but consumers seem to, especially really young consumers today, they, they seem to be as enamored and in love with brands as they ever have been, but really allergic to to traditional advertising. And I think we're going to see more brands taking more risks. In a way that that makes the consumer feel like they're in on the joke that that is a little bit more subversive. That's maybe not quite as obviously brand safe, right? Like not putting Coinbase's logo on the uh, on the frame until the final three seconds of a sixty second Super Bowl commercial is insane by most conventional standards, and yet, like they generated billions of free global media impressions. The 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 stunt became globally syndicated news. Uh, the very next day, so there's something to giving your audience a little bit of credit and um, taking a, a little bit of risk and cutting against the grain.
0: I mean, shout out to you know, the power of simplicity, you know, in advertising. I mean, just incredible. And I'm curious, like, you know, as you're seeing this happen, right? Because also, I think the I think the website crashed too, right? There was like so much it traffic, up, but, right? So, the, yeah. so, so, t- take us into the mind of Alex Woods. Like, I'm assuming you're watching. You're watching the game. You're watching that part. You know, at what point were you like, touchdown? Like, we just crushed it. I mean 20 million hits. Like, are you are you looking at any kind of real time data at that point? Are you waiting until you get the call from the Coinbase folks like we crushed it? Because the other the other there's also this financial and market impact of what happened too. I mean, their stock price increased four percent, adding like nearly a billion dollars to its market cap. And that, you know, that nearly doubled to a two billion dollar increase later on. So we're talking about, you know, massive public reaction, lots of critiques and things like that. And I mean, dude, you, I can imagine being in the boardroom before like, hey guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a 60 second, you know, shot and we're not going to put your logo. It's going to be a QR code. It's super simple. I got to imagine that it's going to to be some potential pushback there. And so take us into just kind of maybe that, that early conversation and then take us into like, when did you feel that this was okay? We just killed it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the funny thing is the client team was actually less comfortable with any of the more traditional stuff that we presented, which really is like the inverse of most of most experiences, right? They they wanted to do something that was more countercultural and and they were they were so uncomfortable with the the sort of standard quote-unquote big game Approach that there was a serious conversation about selling that ad space. Like maybe this just isn't right for our brand. It's too mass media right now. It doesn't feel like we're being we're being true to ourselves. And ultimately, you know, we we stuck it out. We kept working. I mean, kudos to to Kate Rao and the team who kind of persevered through the thick and thin of that. It was not easy. Um, Most of the best work that I've ever been a part of was not easy. Uh, I, I I kind of often uh refer to it as like standing in the fire. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because it, you know, it doesn't get figured out right away. And, and that was certainly the case in this. About three weeks before the game, we we all collectively came up with this idea and made one last push to try to execute it and pull it off. When did I know that it was it was a big success? Um, you know, it's funny, we we didn't we didn't precede the film with any press. You know, that's pretty customary at this point. I think we heard on Saturday morning um, that every brand had revealed their big game commercial, except for three, and Coinbase hadn't even publicly confirmed it was in the game. I think there was still rumors and speculation that we were going to be there, but well, we ha- we hadn't released it, which which in itself was kind of you know curious. And it was uh, the the ad buy was a floater spot, so we we weren't actually we weren't sure when it was going to run it's sort of like one of these one of these ad breaks that is game dependent so uh if there's an injury timeout or like you know a cat runs on the field or something like that then they've got a, an ad block that that they're scheduled to run and we got really lucky it ran in the first quarter i had a bunch of people over at my house a bunch of friends and as soon as i heard the background music come on i was like oh man that's it so i kind of ran back into the living room and started watching it was really special. My kids didn't really know what was going on. They were really young at the time. I think they were like one and three or something. And, uh, yeah, like, like I, I think everybody around me knew probably mostly based on my reaction that, uh, that that was the ad. I don't think I'd shared it with most of them. And, uh, my kids kind of just like rushed over to me. They were like climbing all over me. It was just, it was kind of a, a really special, like magical moment. There weren't a lot of words, uh, you know, Taking credit, I was just sort of like living in the moment and, and watching the thing we'd been stressing about day and night for like six or seven months come together. But um, yeah, as as soon as it airs, you know, you 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 got to open Twitter, and uh, we just we just saw this thing going going nuts, and then you know we get you get tons of tons of uh, text messages from friends who are asking about it and saying congratulations and and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, we we saw their we saw the the Coinbase uh, app jump from. 186 to number two in the Apple app store, like almost immediately, like overnight. Wow. wow. Um, and it was only behind NBC, which was which was the app you had to download if you were going to stream the game, uh, the, the Super Bowl itself. So we did pretty good. I don't think we could have gotten that number one spot. That's like, you know, probably 40 million people just streaming the game on their their mobile phones or their tablets or something. But yeah, you kind of know wild. right away and then you just keep watching it. You just keep yeah. seeing what happens and... And like I said, it was um it was pretty special. Like you get, I think the Cleos told us that we were the the super Clio. We were the best uh best out of the night, the USA Today poll, which is kind of the the mass kind of ad ad meter, um, ranked us dead last. That's exactly what we wanted. We sort of joked about that being the goal at some point, even. Um, we knew we were doing something that was so different, it was gonna offend people, it was gonna, mm-hmm. you know, fail to meet their expectations, but for a whole different class of people or for a whole different generation of people. You know, honestly, like I, I think they, they still believe it's the best ad they've seen. So really proud of that. I think um, you just got to hang in, hang in there and, you know, kind of keep the faith that it's going to pull together. And I'm sure sometimes it doesn't. But when you're surrounded by really talented people and people, you know, and, and those same people can um, be comfortable with being uncomfortable a little bit, then, uh, yeah, you've got some of the important ingredients to do something special.
0: I you know of course do some due diligence on you on all the guests that come in and like you've just had exposure to some iconic brands you've done some epic stuff I want to just kind of you know set the table here on your background your perspective like what's like what's on the table right now what are you working on what are you excited about what do you want other marketing executive leaders to know about brand creative strategy and kind of your perspective
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, like you said, like I've spent the entirety of my career in creative agencies. I've gotten to see it from a bunch of different perspectives. And the way that I think about it is the the work that I'm doing right now is kind of the culmination of a lot of those experiences, kind of wrapping it all together, trying to take the the best of some of those classical approaches and apply them to contemporary channels, to contemporary technologies, to, to contemporary capabilities, and try to do things that That feel fresh, that surprise customers or consumers for brands, um, and that ultimately help them sell out and achieve their achieve their goals. So, yeah, we've been doing a lot of fun stuff over at Accenture Song, and I'm excited to talk about some of that today.
0: Awesome. On the note of like, you know, what's fresh, you know, and and what's working, what's not working in terms of brand and brand strategy as someone you know as someone like you who who really sits like at this intersection of of brand creative and brand strategy at, at you know for some you know growth stage brands and some massive brands what is the balance like for you of like okay yes fresh yes innovation and also like like you said there's also a classical there's some approach there's some rigor to it the world's moving so fast how do you how do you balance the like it's got to be fresh it's got to be the freshest that it possibly can be and it's got to work with what's worked in the past, right? Because it seems like there'd be a lot of potential pressure to always have something new, always have the next thing. And someone that leads, you know, head of brand, how do you navigate that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, brand is a tool, right? And and I believe that it's a really powerful tool for driving growth. Um, and a lot of academic research also backs that up. But I think before you go right into thinking about the nuances or the specificities of an individual brand, right because every brand is a little bit unique or, or in some cases quite unique. but there are some governing principles around how marketing and specifically integrated marketing work, and when you can sort of table set and contextualize that, it creates a role for brand that helps you make more informed decisions or helps you make decisions with your brand as a filter for how you approach them uniquely or distinctly to try and engage uh, a target customer. And so everything that we do is ultimately in service of what, what's happening right now. But a lot of it is born from more classic marketing frameworks or um, brand strategy exercises that oftentimes are looking pretty deeply into a company's past with a view to trying to establish something that's authentic and something that can be made more relevant or more contemporary right now.
0: So is it is it safe to say that like growth stage companies like that's the sweet spot for you right now like these kind of is that the the size kind of brands that you're really focused on I know you've worked with lots of brands but is growth stage kind of 50 to 250 million ARR is that where you're investing a lot of your time
1: It's where I'm seeing a lot of founders and marketing executives needing some more support I think what happens is businesses grow obviously when you know when they're successful they start to grow And they reach this tipping point where they need to change the game that they're playing in some regard. And that's where brand can be a a particularly helpful uh, vehicle for them. So when you're just starting out, if you're a founder, if you're a marketing executive at a small, rapidly scaling startup, you're probably mostly focused on proving out product market fit. You're probably focused on um, establishing yourself within some sort of a niche and and that's that's important to do for some period of time right but uh, at some point typically to um, continue that that growth cycle to continue to reach new customers you you have to start to take a longer view over your business and that really comes down to starting to adopt a framework that's built around building awareness of their, of your brand name of your brand marks your identity Building associations, um, what are those specific drivers that contribute to uh, a, a customer's decision to purchase a product? Um, and then lastly, activation. So this is kind of the basic formula. But what I find is that brands reach this reach this point where they've focused on the conversion marketing for so long and now they're starting to figure out or starting to ask themselves, like, when will it be time for my company to start to really invest in building its brand intentionally? Um, so that we can compete for a greater share of the category.
0: So that's awesome and that's that's really where I was thinking we go next is like you know, in terms of timing, right? Like brand is important, you know, arguably throughout you know the 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 company's life cycle, right brand, brand matters. and then you start to grow and you start to see you know investments and and growth, as you said. When is the right time for companies, let's say you're talking about these growth stage companies, they're in the 50 to 250 million ARR, when's it the right time for companies to start really investing significantly in their branding beyond just, you know, functional aspects of their product or their services?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question, right? So typically what what happens in the life, life cycle of a company is you you start with one product or maybe a couple of products and you're starting to, like I said, build that niche. What, what then happens is that you realize in order to continue to grow or to inc- continue to um, occupy more of your customer's wallet or to attract um, new segments within a particular category, the business starts to introduce new products or starts to introduce new services. And and sometimes um, they may even start to introduce new distribution channels. So think about the, the direct-to-consumer brands who all of a sudden are starting to Get into wholesale. They're starting to sell in traditional brick and mortar retail for the first time. You know, alternatively, you might be in a category where a competitor is coming out with a product that distracts or or, or takes some interest from some segment within your category. Other times, you know, brands come under pressure from dupes or lower cost imitations, and you know, it could be one or multiple or all of these different um, you know business contexts, but. The real point is that brand building is kind of a a critical um, lever to your marketing plan to actually start to create more emotional connections with consumers, more emotional relevance, capture more mental uh, availability is a a term that uh, marketing academics use to, to represent this combination of awareness and association. So not just is my brand known, but is it known for the right things? Is it known for the things that are going to convince someone to, to purchase me instead of the next the next competitor? and ultimately the reason why why brand is so important, um, you know if you kind of flip it and you, you take brand out of the equation, what are you left with? Well, if you're competing for short term sales among a narrow customer, you're competing on very functional attributes about your brand and product, right? Specific product details, uh, maybe specific usage occasions or usage usage benefits. Uh, another highly functionable functional attribute is price. Um, and often what you see is that price comes under direct attack when people are when when brands and companies are fighting these sort of rational, benefit-led fights at the point of sale. The way that I think about it is, you know, if if you're a marketer, you're you're a founder, you're a marketer who is primarily Running short-term sales-oriented, rationally-led campaigns, then you're making an implicit bet. You're making a bet that you are going to have a stronger rational value proposition um, in that product category. But but potentially, you know, again, if you're expanding your product portfolio, you're you're making it a bet that you you're going to win at the at a rational level for every product in your portfolio, and that's a really difficult game to play. I would argue it's probably close to an impossible game to play because there's so much competition in the marketplace. There's always a new category entrant. There's always a new technology that makes that makes some part of manufacturing or some delivery mechanism a little bit easier or cheaper to afford. If you're fighting to win on 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 that battleground, then I, I think you're fighting to lose. You you really need to flip the equation, think about what am I doing to create more emotional, more robust Connections with my potential customer, and also like not losing sight of the fact that not everybody that you're speaking to is in the market to buy from you today.
0: I was gonna say like how how do brands hedge their bets, right? How can you maybe give us an example of like yeah, I know this is where we can talk about some of the cool stuff you've worked on, but where they can start to bring in that emotional, robust right connection with the brand. Give us an example of of how yeah brands can hedge their bets, and maybe something you got to work on that was really cool.
1: Yeah. So I I want to talk about this this concept first because I I think it's it's an interesting um, point of reference. We can maybe debate the specifics of it, but there's some some work done within the last couple of years by LinkedIn, and I think it was in partnership with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, but it introduced this idea of the 95 5 rule. And again, I don't know if the numbers are specific to every category. We can kind of debate it, but um, directionally, I think it's important. Basically, what this rule suggests is that. In any given category at any given time, 95% of of prospective customers are out of market, which is to say that they're not actively shopping in the category, um, leaving the remaining 5% of customers in market. What does that actually mean? It means that if you are leading with a functional message, with a functional benefit, you're you're betting that you're going to um, capture a customer's attention. Uh, you're going to make them think about the brand. You're going to maybe drive them closer to the point of sale, or you're going to convert that sale. And I think that's that's misguided, right? Um, if I'm a customer who's uh, who's going about their day and I receive a, an advertising message from a brand that's trying to appeal to me on rational terms, but I'm not actually actively you know, shopping in that market or in that category, it's probably going to go by completely unnoticed. It's certainly not something that I'm going to remember. Um, it may not even be something that really makes sense to me. If you tell me that you know it costs four hundred and ninety nine dollars to lease a car this month, if I'm not actively shopping for the car, I have no idea whether that's a good good value for me or not, right? So there, there's this huge responsibility for brands to think about both sides of of their their segment profile, right? The, these consumers that are primed to buy the product or the service, that's kind of how we think about segmentation in the first place. But within that segmentation, Uh, the vast majority of customers are not actively shopping right now. So if you're not appealing to them uh, with a more emotional message, right, and that could be comedy, that could be, you know, something that is reframing a product or a category um, that could be introducing maybe a question along moral or or, or ethical um, standards that makes them reappraise an issue and what they favor or what they don't. Those are strategies that are going to help, you know, establish your brand's name uh, in the minds of that consumer who's not actively, actively shopping. And if you if you can take it one step further to the point I, I started to introduce before around this awareness, association, and activation framework, if you can introduce an emotional grounding for the name and and, and for the for the the icon iconography of a brand, but then really drive the associations that that become decision make or, or you know influencers of purchase decisions. Now you're starting to um, build a strategy that enables those out-of-market customers to think of you when they become in-market customers. And you never know, like, you you never really know when that's going to happen at the individual level. Um, I would go so far as to argue that advertising and marketing really doesn't um, change consumer behavior very much. It's sort of a fallacy that there's this, um, you know, that we push consumers through a funnel. Um, I think that's generally misguided. I don't know that we can fully inform or, or, or influence when they're ready to, to, to get into that buying mindset. But the point is, uh, build an integrated plan so that you're, you're reaching people proactively before they're in the marketplace for your products. And then you, you know, you, your brand and your products become top of mind and, and really part of that consideration set for when, you, uh, for when they ultimately do go into, you know, get closer to that point of purchase.
0: So as part of like the integrated plan, like what are some of the components of that? You know, I love that the the nod to the ninety five five rule. You know, you brings up really under you know wanting to understand the customer journey and what's the significance there. A lot of people, as you said, are according to that report, are either not even in the decision making world or they're in the very early stages. So you know, you have customer journey, you've got retargeting and content and engagement strategies and things like that. What are you know, What are some of these pieces that are really important? Um, for the for the for the ninety five, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think about the importance of some of these frameworks not being like the answer, but kind of the map that you need to start to complete so that you can build complementary assets, and ultimately not expect any one asset in, in your marketing mix to do um, multiple jobs, because then it it inevitably starts to put too much pressure on on that asset, and it it's not really doing any one thing particularly well, so. If you have to introduce your brand, you know if, if that's a if that's a critical task, get more people to to to, to know our name, to um, know what we stand for. Then, you know build assets that specifically do that. If you need to drive association, you know, with a specific use case or um, need state in your category, so that when people have you know muscle aches and pains, you're one of the brands that gets into their consideration set. Do that job particularly well, and if you have strong you know, rational, functional messages to sell off of, sell uh, to people who are actively shopping. But often, um, those are those are at least, if not more, uh, at least three distinct components of your marketing mix, and you need to to build deliberate deliberate strategies um, for for each of those things. So, you know, s- some of the work that some of the work that I've been a part of that has has been really successful in doing that was for IHOP. IHOP is a, you know, for, for those who may or may not know, is a, um, is a fast casual brand. They're known as the house of the International House of Pancakes. Uh, they've been around for 60 or 70 years, right? And they sort of had lost a little bit of their, their relevance in the marketplace. When, when we started working with them, there was this question about, we need to expand our, our, our day part mix. We need to be more relevant outside of breakfast and brunch occasions. You know, obviously some people want breakfast for dinner every once in a while, but there's this um there's this important strategic push to get into the high-selling products on uh in their category, things like burgers, things like fried chicken, et cetera. And you know, initially there were a lot of conversations about whether we should move the brand away from pancakes, like, you know, do we consider a full uh wow. rebrand? Do we rename it? Um, etc. And after a little bit of deliberation, after a little bit of um, strategic interrogation of the opportunity, we actually came back and we said, listen, we believe that there's an opportunity to double down on what your core competencies are. We think that we can reframe your commitment to pancakes as the reason why someone might actually want to try your burgers. You're fanatical about trying to improve one product. Let's use that as a brand equity that we can carry into." some of the brand storytelling for other products that we need to introduce over time that helps strengthen um, different, different, day part, different day parts of our offering. What that looked like in execution in, in the early days of, of the new campaign that we introduced was creating what we were calling a, a pancake language. We, we, we effectively swapped every word in the script for the word pancakes for the first four campaigns that we produced. Uh, it was probably about six or seven months in market but we, we decided to lay a foundation that was, that was you know, maniacally focused on selling and talking about pancakes to, 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 to strengthen that relationship. Then eventually we started to migrate into other, other food groups. We, t- we started to talk about different breakfast items like omelets. We started to talk about burgers. We started to talk about some of their partnerships over time. But what we were successfully starting to do was build these core associations, build these build these strong linkages to the things that they were most authentically known for. We were supporting some of that brand work, some of that promotional uh, work with content that was specifically focused on the food. Um, so, so we weren't just expecting the brand work or, or the awareness level work to also um, drive deeper consideration of specific uh, menu offerings. And then, you know, really at the local level, we were driving um, promotional messaging so that we could try and close a deal and get more foot traffic into stores and make it easy for for people who hadn't been back to the brand in a while to come and see us. But I think as you start to pull it apart a little bit, you realize a lot of these early, especially early stage brands who are, who are trying to figure out how to, how to step up their game and kind of compete for category share, they're trying to cram too much in. And um, I, I think at the same time, they're also sort of running after every opportunity that they can think of. And by establishing some of these core principles, these core frameworks... They free themselves up a little bit. They free themselves up for individual messages to do individual jobs within their marketing mix. Um, they figure out what they can say yes to, what they can say no to, and often there's quite a lot in those that, that first year one of kind of resetting some of the stuff that you, that you need to say no to. I think you know a lot of what we're talking about is driving efficiency, maximizing the impact of the resources that you have, whether that's your budget or your labor hours. But really, really being deliberate about what are what are the ways in which we're gonna try and punch above our weight to get our brand out there into culture, get our brand out there into media. What are those ways that we're going to try and drive deeper associations with the things that we think are going to motivate customers to consider us? And then ultimately, you know, we're going to be kind of um, laser focused on trying to convert those, those short-term sales. Um, and ultimately it's, it's not any one of these things. It's all of these things working in unison, but, but often I think there's a lot of pressure outside of marketing departments to 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 just prioritize the short term sales tactics and you know that can right. work for a while it can work for some brands at some some stages of their growth but it doesn't work for forever
0: yeah I was wondering how you navigated that because I would imagine that you know you're you probably are entering into some conversations where there is that pressure right and where it's like the, there's focus on path to conversion and 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 growth you know by any means necessary um, you know how do you you know position yourself at the table when when you know brands Of of a lot of shapes and sizes are at that point where they're focused on that, right? And then you bring in this more, you know, potentially longer term play when it comes to brand strategy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the the honest truth is that it's it's hard. It's just hard to convince someone who 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 isn't seeing or or starting to feel the the natural need for this within their business or within their organization. I've spoken to a lot of non-marketers who have this sense like, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're starting to see some traction in wholesale. We've got, you know, big national retailers that want us, want us in their stores or that are giving us more floor space in their stores. They're purchasing more from us. You know, maybe they've done that for a year. Maybe they've done that for two years. They're back at the table. They're starting to have conversations about how the partnership is working. You know, the retailer in a lot of cases is looking to the brand to kind of prove, you know are you supporting are you adequately adequately investing in yourself so that my customer knows you when they walk through the door there are a lot of little implicit signals some explicit but a lot of implicit signals that even the non-marketers pick up on and what i firmly believe is that you you, you take these sort of trap these 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 traditional frameworks and you go to work at applying them uniquely to service the needs of the business every every business is a little bit different but establishing some of these core Core operating principles within the business it really helps you say no to certain things. And I mentioned that before, but I think there is a temptation that when when brands are growing, the organization as a whole is probably not just true of marketing; it's probably true of every division of the company. Is kind of racing after every opportunity, mm. and 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 at some point, that also fails you. It's important to grow quickly. It's important to follow your customer. Uh, you want to be looking to those. T- Signals in the marketplace. You want to be following trends. You need to be dynamic. You need to pivot. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things, but I've seen it happen where brands try to expand too too aggressively into too many disparate avenues, and what ultimately happens is they kind of lose the position that they established and were most successful in in their early days. They kind of inevitably give that space to a competitor or a new entrant who's come in to try and compete with them. And now they're struggling to keep up with some of the more established incumbent brands who who are winning in those areas where they've been trying to to grow so I think um, you know there, one of the conversations that I think that that's come up a lot in in the world of marketing around like generative AI and artificial intelligence has to do with efficiency and certainly those are those are important tools for for creating more efficiency in certain ways for your business and I'm sure they'll be even more important in the future but one way you can become a lot more efficient as an organization is is simply uh, making the, the the strategic decisions about what you're not going to do and being pretty ruthless in
0: um and staying focused on what you are committed to. Can you kind of get into some of the insights of how people can enter into this line of work, right? Some of the skills, maybe the experiences that are particularly valuable, right? And and maybe even some opportunities that exist for aspiring brand strategists.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, for one, started I, st- I started my career in traffic, which is probably, I don't even know if, if agencies use that term anymore, but it was basically coordinating the release of, uh, you know, print and out-of-home mechanicals and walking around the office getting art directors and copywriters to sign their initials to make sure that, you know, there weren't any spelling errors or the design uh, wasn't compromised when it was resized for whatever magazine or out of home billboard or whatever. It was the the lowest lowest on the totem pole. And um, in my experience, the the most important thing that you can do is just start. You're going to come across people throughout your career that you run into again. I mean, when I was in that first job, I worked with a creative director named Tim Rohn, who uh, is now the, the CCO, I think, of McGarrett-Jesse. But we, were, we started in a little agency in North Carolina, and um, probably six or seven years later, I bumped in, into him again when I was at BBDO. He was a creative director there, um, and, and he's, he's continued on to reach new heights in his career. He's an amazing guy. You just have to kind of do it on your terms. You've got to get in where you can. Um, I think showing passion is important. I think uh, hard work matters more than anything. Um, you can be really smart, but if you don't work hard, you know, you're, you're just not going to get all the opportunities that you want. And, you know, I think the important thing is just just move between uh, move between cities, move between agencies, move between departments and really try and challenge yourself. You know, follow follow the things that are interesting to you. Don't try to follow what somebody else did. I don't think that's going to be a successful formula. But if you really do find what you're interested in, just go for it. I mean, that, that that's that's usually my first first bit of advice for people is. Like go on the go on the tr- the the advertising um, trade publications. You know, go on go on Instagram, go on Twitter, or whatever, and and follow people running these companies and uh, just see what work their their teams are putting out. And you know, then go and apply to the the jobs at the at the agencies that that you think are doing the most interesting work. That might be you know something related to influencer marketing. It might be social. It might be. Web design, it might be brand advertising, but I think if you find the thing that resonates with you, you're really putting yourself in a position to be successful because you're you're interested. And um, you know, when you're first cutting, you know, first getting started in this in this career, there's a lot of you know administrative work. It's not always that glamorous. It's not as high paying as a lot of the finance jobs or, or whatnot that you you probably have friends who are, you know, your friends are doing. But I I think if you're if you're interested in in this combination of creativity and art and commerce and business, it's a really fulfilling career to 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 carve out for yourself.
0: I am curious in that kind of in that vein around like how like I you know I talk to a lot of uh, like creatives who are you know entering into this world and and they they ask like how how do they find the balance of like. You know this creative uh, aspirations, and then the demands of like the business world, right? And I find some of them just say, you know, that they have they have trouble dancing in that in that right. It's like they've got brilliant creativity, you know, across a spectrum, and yet that doesn't always land uh, driving with the business needs, right? You strike me as someone who is able to balance right creative with business and where we're going. It's kind of married together. Um, but how do you strike that balance? Any advice for folks who are aiming aiming for that?
1: I think you have to develop a point of view, and that's that was one of the principles or the beliefs I think at Druga Five that made made the agency successful and that made it such a great place to learn for so many people for for a long time. But when you develop a point of view and you can start to develop uh, a way of interpreting, you know, the work, and you you start to develop conviction behind things, that's probably that's probably point number one. Point number two is. You need to you need to have the conviction and and the the, the follow through to actually present those points of view and be comfortable. Like I said before, being uncomfortable. Um, there are a lot of those moments when, like, an executive on the brand side or founder has a pretty strong point of view. Right? These people have conviction. They might have a particularly strong point of view that does not align with yours, and that's not a reason to stop fighting for your point of view or or, or sharing and advocating for your point of view. It's not necessarily about being combative, but I think you, you have to kind of live your truth sometimes in, in the creative, in the creative space. And at the same time, I, I will also say, and my partner at Accenture, um, Jason Krayer says this a lot, which, which I, 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 I really also believe is the truth, which is y- you need to develop some sensibilities around where the line is. There are, I think there's a tendency for. Creative advertising professionals, maybe not just creatives within the field, but people in these agency uh, cultures, to sort of want to make a name for themselves by doing the most outrageous thing. And you know, I've benefited from doing some, you know, incredible work, some some work that we just talked about that, that that people love and hate. I think that I think that's good territory to be in, but sometimes you can take it a little bit too far. And I think it's helpful to be aware that that's a That's a muscle that you want to build throughout your career. You want to be be a, a partner to the client and be able to filter your own instincts and ambitions and say, "You know what we can we can push it this far without being offensive or putting the brand in harm's way." Or I've really thought about this, and I understand the brand team's perspective that maybe we're taking this too far, but I don't believe that's the case, and I believe that we should be pushing further. Into our, you know, our, our 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 discomfort zone to to really try and activate the brand and to accomplish the goals that we want to with um, with the consumer that we have in mind. And so, it, it's different every single time. I call it standing in the fire. I think you've got to learn how to stand in the fire and be uncomfortable with with or be be comfortable with being uncomfortable and and that requires having you know difficult conversations. It means having conversations that people don't want to have again. It means listening. It means you know knowing when to 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 take a step back or take some of the pressure off. But in my experience, those are all really important to getting to the best work. And they require time. They require space. they require time. They require senior stakeholders um, on both sides to be actively engaged in the conversation. When you start to expect that um, from the from the the agency and the client team, and you really start to form a partnership and there's there's real uh, ability to listen on both sides there's real space to get into uh the the nuances and the details of the project that's when really important you know special stuff happens
0: and alex this has been epic man we even went over i felt like i was i literally felt like i was sitting like as you're on a panel just being schooled and listening and really just amazing mic drop moments, man. Congratulations, like to you and the whole squad at Accenture Song. And and really I know this is just like a part of your journey. There's so much more to come. So thank you so much for being on Marketing Trends. We appreciate it. And you have an epic rest of your day. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it, man. it has been fun. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic.